All right, and as they make their way back there, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6. And last, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Cynthia and I received a letter from AARP. And it was addressed to Cynthia, and she handed it to me and said, they obviously have the wrong name on here. This is obviously for you. I said, all right, hand it over. It's, it's, it's got to be a clerical error. And so I opened it up and started reading, and I uh, had some nice information, how to save money in the grocery store, how to uh, prepare for retirement. And then one heading of an article in big kind of bold letters, it said, how's your heart? How's your heart? I thought, well, wow, kind of a personal question. You really want to know? At the moment, my heart was particularly aggravated. We have this little book called Sir Badalot and the Cranky Danky Dragon. And if you would have asked my kids, they would have said, beware, dad is the cranky danky dragon. And it was just one of those days where, uh, you know, you have your perfectly laid plans and it seems like all of your life is conspiring to mock those plans and knock them off uh, as quickly as possible. And I thought, wow, you really want to know. My, my heart is aggravated and I'm annoyed. And so tell me, let's, let's, let's hear what you have to say. And then the big first line says, did you know that the leading cause of death for men 45 and over are heart-related diseases. I thought, whoa, this is getting serious really quick. Maybe this was uh, for me. Started reading this. Did you know that in, in 2019, Americans spent $250 billion on heart-related health? And then in big letters, how healthy is your heart? Oh, you mean healthy like that? Not like I was, oh, okay, good. Yeah, that, I, got, I, think, I think we're good. And that's the answer to the question. Like, how healthy is your heart? And you know, one of the things that the Bible says is kind of one of the macro themes of the Bible in Proverbs chapter 4. Solomon will say, above all else, the most important thing in your life is to guard your heart. Because out of it will flow the springs of life. It is a wellspring of life. And whether the AARP editors know it or not, that question they're asking is one of the most fundamental questions in life. No matter um, of all the opportunities you have, or the challenges you'll face, or the conditions you'll enter, or the circumstances that come your way, one of the most important questions you can wrestle with is how healthy is my heart. And now we have a challenge when we think about heart health because the way we conceptualize of heart is either only in the physical, like does it pump blood kind of realm, or in the just kind of sappy, sentimental, emotional, kind of vapid way. But when the Bible talks about our heart, it's talking about something much deeper and much more central to who we are. You know, the word for heart is used over a thousand times in the Bible. So I thought I'd do a quick word study to kind of get some context, and I had over a thousand hits pop up. So, ooh, this might take longer than I anticipated. 
And you'd look through it, and when the Bible's talking about your heart, it's talking about the center of your, your physical, your emotional, your intellectual, your moral activities. It's talking about kind of the inner core of your being from which all of your actions flow. One image I like is, is Dallas Willard says it's the command center for your entire life. So any Star Trekkies out there, it's, it's the bridge for your whole life. And from it, everything that you think or say or do flows out of your heart. So the question this morning, the AARP million dollar question, is how healthy is your heart? So we're going to look at Luke 6 this morning, and we're going to ask, all right, how do you get a healthy heart? And one of the things we're going to see is that Jesus says your heart is like a tree that needs to be cultivated. It's like a treasure that needs to be guarded. And it's like a house that needs to be built. And again, this could be a challenge for us, because we really, we don't live in a culture that values the heart. Not in this way. I mean, we value romance, or we value accomplishments, we value prestige, but not the heart. You think about what God told Samuel when God told Samuel that uh, he was going to uh, take the kingdom from King Saul and he was going to raise up for himself a man after his own heart. And he sends him to Jesse's house with all of Jesse's sons. And Jesse had some impressive sons. And one after another comes and God says, nope, he's not it. He's not it. And then finally, they call the runt of the litter, and the runt comes, and God says, yep, that's the man. And Samuel's like, him? Are you sure? This is the guy? And God says, Samuel, no, no, no. Man looks at the external appearance, but I look at the heart. And so it'd be interesting to think, like, you know, we have a, uh, externally, you all look wonderful this morning. But as God sees all of us, he looks down and he sees the condition of the heart. So how do you get a healthy heart? One that's strong, one that's resilient, one that's fruitful, one that uh, the Holy Spirit makes alive so all of the fruits of, the, of his spirit can bloom in your heart. You know, we want to change. We want to have healthy hearts. Again, Dallas Willard says, our social and psychological sciences stand helpless to be able to truly change the heart. So how do we have a heart change? How can we have a heart that's changed? Now, let me do a little series recap to kind of locate this message in the where we are this month. Because our normal standard is that we uh, take books of the Bible and we move through those uh, sequentially. So starting on September 17th, this whole next kind of school year, we're going through the book of Exodus. But one of our kind of traditions here at Trinity is every summer we pause. And what we want you to experience what we want your heart to be captured and captivated by is, is the gospel. We want you to experience his transforming power. And if you're going to experience his power, there's certain things you have to know. It's good news, so there's things you need to know. But then it, you also need to experience renewal of the Holy Spirit, where it refreshes and restores and renews your heart. And then there's a certain way that that causes you to live out in the world. So if you're going to experience his power, you need all of those. Sound doctrine, renewal of the Holy Spirit, faithful living. And every summer, we try to highlight different uh, practices or things that can help renew the heart. 
And so a couple years ago, for a couple years, we do prayer or Sabbath, and we're making some structural changes to our Sunday morning. So we have Sunday morning worship at 9.30, and then our discipleship classes at 11. And so we've been taking August to try and explain and at least lay some of the kind of intellectual foundations for why we want to do that. And we looked at one of the texts that we looked at, because we'll have a little theme of seek, grow, serve, that we want to shape our year. So we seek God's face, and that comes from Psalm 27, where God says, uh, he says, uh, David responds, where he says, you have told me, Lord, your face uh, to seek. I seek, I long to seek your face. One thing have I desired. And that's to see the face of the living Lord. So we seek his face in worship. But then grow. How do we grow in the last couple weeks? We tried to put Jesus' ministry that he came and his first priority was to come preaching and teaching. So we want to kind of structure our Sunday morning so we experience his preaching and then his teaching. And we looked at last week how Jesus was, a, was seen to the outside world the way they explained, all right, who is he? to especially the Gentile world who didn't have categories. See, if you grew up in, the, in a Jewish context, when they come and say, Jesus has come, he's the son of David, you know who David is. And you say, he's the, the Messiah, the anointed one. You know what that means. But if you didn't grow up in that world, you grew up in a different context, none of those characters or names had made any sense to you. So the way they explained it is he's a teacher, he's a philosopher. He's come to show us the way to life. And so philosophies were uh, very important, big business in the ancient world, because all everyone knew that life was short. Life was short. Life was precarious. I mean, you could be in your workshop on Tuesday and get a cut or a burn, and you're dead on Thursday. And so life was precarious, and they didn't want to waste it. And so the philosophers were the ones who told people, this is how you live well. And the way they presented Jesus said he's brought uh, teaching to help us live well. That's one of the things that he came to do. And so what we're going to highlight this morning, I want to uh, focus on Luke chapter 6, where it gives Jesus' summary. Uh, Luke gives his summary of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And then there's three images that he tells that summarizes his teaching, that summarize what our heart is. How do we live well, a fruitful, strong, stable life? So pick up the images, and we're going to unpack them some this morning. So starting in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked, picked from the bramble bush. A good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. But the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks." Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against it and that house, uh, against that house, and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do my word is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation, and the stream broke against it, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. So let's look at these three pictures that Jesus paints, three different pictures about what your heart is like. 
And each of those pictures have a contrast of there's two ways to be, two ways to live. And notice the first one. The first is that your heart is like a tree. And your words and your action are the, the fruit. Good tree. This is one of the, the uh, most common biblical metaphors for life. The metaphors that we're like a tree. Proper metaphor for growth. We are more like plants than we are machines. And just think about it. We love like machine analogies and language. Um, since the Industrial Revolution, you know, we talk about you know, our brains, are, or we talk about being wired a certain way, or the brains are supercomputers, things like that. I don't know how helpful those metaphors are. The, the metaphor the Bible loves is that we're like, we're organic living beings. We're like trees. And the way, um, the way you work on a machine, and the way you work on a living being, are very different. And you need to have the, 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 the metaphor of we're living beings and called to, to grow. So one of, the, one of the themes is how do you grow, not just be put together. So healthy, organic growth. First, it begins with life. There has to be a seed. It has to be a living thing. You, know, you, can, you can plant rocks in the ground and nothing's going to happen. You can plant pebbles or marbles and nothing's going to grow. There has to be life already in the seed. And then healthy, when life is healthy, it leads to certain type of growth. Seeds, animals, plants. But growth is never, it's not mechanical. You can't just take and stick things on. One of Cynthia's favorite things in life is sunflowers, but we know that both of us have uh, remarkably destructive black thumbs. So every organic flower that we even just come near generally dies. So we're looking at, all right, what, what type of artificial plant can we have that gives the appearance of sunflowerness, but requires no actual skill to grow and to cultivate. That's what we need in our house. But that's not really what we want for our children. We want them to grow and to be healthy, but at least the flowers out front. You know, growth is not mechanical. Um, you know, one of the things about growth is often it goes undetected and you don't really notice it, even when it's extraordinary. You know, every like 12 year old has that uh, horrific experience every time they go and visit family and they see like, you know, Aunt Charlotte who hadn't seen them in a year. And, ah, I can't believe you grab your cheeks and shake you and you've gotten so big. And you know, you don't know if that's a compliment or not. You know, even when it's explosive, you know, um, I uh, tried out for our, my middle school basketball team in eighth grade and got cut. And one of the reasons I got cut is because I was 5'3". And then when I tried out for the basketball team my 10th grade year, I made it. And one of the reasons I made it, my skill hadn't really changed all that much. But at that point, I was 6'4". So when you go from 5'3 to 6'4 in about a year, I mean, that's pretty explosive growth. Uh, I could feel it. Like my legs, my legs still hurt when I think about it. But even in that, I couldn't really see it. It wasn't kind of perceptible. But you could see the marks on the door just charging up. So even growth that's explosive, that's sometimes you don't notice. It's gradual uh, in many cases, not, not sudden. One of the kind of the challenges of life is to be what you are. 
You know, I think one of the great ways the church can be a, a witness to the world is if we happily are what we are. And by that, I mean when you're 11, don't try to be 16. And when you're 16, don't try to be 11. And when you're 19, don't try to be 40. And when you're 40, don't try to be 19. And just to be where you are on the stage of growth. When the AARP sends you a letter, don't pretend like it's not yours. <laughs> you have to tend the soil where you can grow. And one of the things that struck me in going through Luke chapter 6 this week is you can go back and uh, we, I don't know if we'll have time today, but maybe next week we'll look at the beginning of chapter 6. And Jesus starts out with these three different soils that the soul needs to grow. He starts out spending time alone with the Lord in prayer, secret prayer with the Lord. This is the soil that the soul grows. Then he comes down the mountain and gathers with him his apostles, his 12. This is analogous to our kind of our small groups where the soul can grow. And then he goes out to the crowd, the great, the big, the large group and crowd. And each one of those soils are different soils that need to be tended and cultivated so the soul can grow. So your heart is like a tree, and the tree needs to grow. And for healthy things to grow, they have to be cultivated. So how are you cultivating the growth of your heart? Now the next thing, notice your heart is like a treasure chest. But what I think so fascinating is notice what comes to the image here is like it's a treasure chest. Now in this world, you think there's no banks Everything you have that's precious or valuable, you have to keep in some type of secure chest box kind of thing, and you have to keep it hidden somewhere. And then in times of scarcity or fear or celebration, that's when you go to the chest to pull things out that can help you, either in emergencies or times of celebration. He says the heart is like this treasure chest. And he says, uh, picking up the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. And then notice, what is the treasure? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he's going to highlight the treasure that you have are your words. And those words are either the things that are going to bring life, they're, they're treasure, they're valuable, or they're destructive, they're evil. You know, every person in here is in possession of weapons of mass destruction. And it's your words. You know, one of the things the Bible talks about is just the power of words that reflects what's in the heart. And, you know, you go through the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs is all about wisdom, and it gives us all these different categories that we need to live wisely in God's world. It talks about family, and it talks about work, and it talks about relationship with neighbors and interpersonal dynamics. But, you know, the, the number one topic in the book of Proverbs is your use of words, how you use your words. And I don't know, are you ever just amazed at the words that come out of your mouth? Here's a hypothetical situation. So this is never happened to me, but you can imagine something like this. Imagine you're trying to have a conversation uh, with someone. Let's say it's, it's someone you love, and maybe like your goal for the last couple years is, all right, we are gonna be more emotionally attuned. 
And so here, here we're going to have a we're going to have a, a an emotional conversation. We're going to engage. I am ready. Here we go. Like the AirPods are out. The podcast is off. The game is turned. The game is off, and we're we're going to have a, a a conversation. Differentiation. Be healthy. Listen. Empathize. All the tools ready. And then you start the conversation, and then, you know, as, as the kids say, something happens to trigger you, and then just something, like, happens, and then you start getting defensive and start saying things, and you have, like, this out-of-body experience where words start coming out of your mouth, and you can see them, you're like, no, stop, come back, come back, come back, come back, and then they're just gone. You're like, oh, why did you say that? How did that happen? And unfortunately, you're, like, talking to somebody, and they know the Bible, and they've heard this verse that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And like, ah, is that what's been in there the whole time? And in that moment of pressure, that's what comes out. I mean, that's never happened to me. I don't know. Could you imagine something like that? <laughs> and you think, like, where did that come from? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so why does Jesus compare our words to this treasure? Because how you speak and how you're spoken to will either make or break your life. It will probably be the most powerful and determinative thing for who you are and how you live. Learning to speak well. Learning to speak wisely. Learning to speak with words that are valuable and precious and give life is one of the most important things you can do and you can experience. You can just kind of think through, you know, the power of words. Printed up in Proverbs, about 30 different verses that just talk about the power of words. You know, they can, they can wound, you know, rash words or like sword thrusts. You know, you can heal from the cut, but you can always have the scar. You know, they bring life or death, they can kill, they can wound, they can destroy. You know, think about the words that have led to both wars internationally and then suicides personally. They can wound, they can name things that can become determinative for how you think about who you are. You know, words have a unique way of getting into you like nothing else can. Proverbs talk about how his rash words can separate friends, they can destroy relationships, they shape your physical, social, internal life. You know, they're so powerful. You almost think like, why? Why do words, you know, the silly, you know, nursery rhymes, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. You know, every one of you who's over four knows that's not true. So why do they have that Power. You know, we were made in the image of a word-speaking God, and we have this desire to both hear words of life and speak words of life. Inside, there's a word hunger. We're inside as we have this hunger to be known and understood, and then on the outside, need to receive them. You know, one of the most damaging things we can say to kids is, it doesn't matter what anyone else says about you. All that matters is how you feel about you. You know, it really does matter. And it does shape you. And that's why it's so important to hear and to receive and to give words of life. Words that are true. You know, the person who really, in the last century, one of the people who really did not care what other people thought about them was Adolf Hitler. So it, it does matter what people think about you. 
but need to think clearly. Words, they're like a treasure. And the healthy heart is like this treasure. Our words are these treasures, but treasures have to be guarded and protected. So how do you guard your heart? What you let in, what you receive. You know, one of the spiritual disciplines is we have to develop a black belt in heart defense to keep out what's destructive and let in what's life-giving because Satan in the world will try. And another image that Jesus uses for the fruit is that the world tries to choke out the fruit that's looking to grow. So your heart is like a, a tree that needs to be cultivated. It's like a treasure that has to be guarded. But notice this next image is that your heart is like a house. Your life is like this house. It's a building project. And notice the, the, the way it contrasts between these two different builders. It says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them. So the key, up until this point, the whole key is people have to come and they have to hear. You have to hear his word, but it's not enough. There's this next step that has to, be, has to happen. There has to be uh, internalization and application. You have to do them. I'll show you what they're like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. And when the floods arose and the stream broke against the house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do these words is like the man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin was great. And this compares, you think about the story, the way Jesus tells it uh, to in Matthew. You know, everyone, you have two different builders. And what's interesting is the, the contrast, both builders are a part of Jesus's kind of church. They both come to him. They both hear his words. So they're both on the right path. They've listened to the right God. They have their Bibles open and they're engaged in the sermons. But in Matthew, he contrasts one is wise and one is foolish. The wise implement, the foolish don't. So two different builders. They also have two different buildings, but I find it intriguing that it's not one builds and the other one snoozes. One builds and the other one is apathetic and lazy and doesn't do anything. They're both very active in building. Every person is building a life. Every person is building a heart. The only question is, what type of life are you trying to build? So it's not one of activity, inactivity. Uh, energy and passivity. Everybody's active. Everybody's building. So you go back to Matthew's version and he uses the Greek word poieo uh, nine times. And that's same. we get the derivative word from that poem. It's how you craft something. How you make something to do, to make. And so it seems that the difference is one person is building according to Jesus's blueprint and the other one is just building as they see fit. You know, I don't know if you, uh, Cynthia and I joke about the different uh, challenges we want to come up with for premarital counseling. And so one of the challenges we're going to start coming up with, because we think, all right, if you can survive this, then you can survive anything. But one of the challenges we're going to for, come over for counseling, we're actually going to send you with our two of our four children. We'll, we'll, we'll make it somewhat easy on you. So we'll send two of our four children with you, and we're going to send you to Ikea. And your challenge, you have to enter into Ikea, agree on the piece of furniture, return home with piece of furniture and the children, 
put it together and then put it in its place without what can, you know, what can come from that. So if you can do that, then you've passed first step of marriage counseling. And so there, there's different ways you can try and put those things together. We've had Ikea furniture that we've, and by we, I mean me, um, have paid more attention to the directions and less attention to the directions. And both times require a lot of energy. There's a lot of effort being had, but sometimes the nightstand stands up and sometimes it collapses. And often it doesn't require a tornado to tell the difference. It just requires a couple of shirts put on one. And when Jesus said, you're building a life, but then the question is, will it be able to stand once the storm comes? Both build, and the storm hits everybody. Of the way he frames it in Matthew, the winds come, the, the gusts, they come, and then the rain, it beats down on the house. And so life is going to come to beat down on the house. And then the question in that moment is, will it stand? So think about your life. When was the last time you experienced something that just rocked you at your foundational level? You know, when those times are, in many ways, they're gifts because you go back to the reality. It's all right, what have I listened to? What have I been building my life upon? Let the troubles of life help you detect where the weaknesses in your foundation are. We're going to have tribulations. That is the common lot of, of life. You know, there's that passage in the book of Job where his friends, they say to him, for hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble, surely, as sparks fly upward. And the image here is that we're all just kind of like wood that gets put on these embers of a, of a life. And at some point, the flames are going to hit. And as we say less eloquently, it's going to hit the fan. And that's just part of life. And the question is, when it does, that reveals to you, hey, what have I been building on? And what I like as Jesus unpacks this, because he's sorry, well, what's the solution? I mean, we think all right, when, when it hits the fan, when the fire comes, when the storm comes, the thing to do then is to escape, to get out of that situation. But what he tells us here, escape is impossible, that everyone is going to go through the situation. The question is, what is your foundation? And in the image here, you got two different bases with two very different byproducts. And what I love is the promise is, notice the promise for the house. If you, built, if you built your house, your heart, on the rock of my teaching, your house will stand when the storm comes. You're going to stand. You're going to survive. You're going to make it. Now, as Americans, that might kind of sound kind of awkward to us because we don't like... We don't like just survival. I mean, just kind of part of what it means to be American is the natural progression of life is kind of up and to the right. You know, I was listening this week on the financial reports from one of the major uh, American corporations, and they were, uh, the stock was dropping because they only grew at 3% this past quarter. So 3% growth was considered a loss, a, uh, uh, a problem. 
And what Jesus says, right, what's going to happen to your house if you build your, your life on my teaching is not that your house is going to magically expand to be the envy of the neighborhood. It's not going to glow in the dark or it's not going to be this, you know, carnival fun house. Your house is going to endure. You're going to survive. You know, this summer I tried to get Cynthia, each summer we try and pick out different genres of movies uh, to watch. And I really wanted her to like and watch some westerns. And maybe it was a mistake in strategy and progression. Because the first one I picked out was Lonesome Dove. And she made it through about halfway of episode two. I was like, all right, I'm out. We got a new genre. I can't take this. And what I never really noticed before, you know, Lonesome Dove, one of the things that Robert McMurtry is kind of doing with the, the Western genre there is kind of flipping upside down what we think of uh, it means to be heroic. Like heroic is to be the mighty cowboy storming the West. And this heroic means you survive. You just make it. The snakes don't kill you. The sun doesn't kill you. You just survive. And one of the things Jesus says, here's the promise is that you endure. But for people who've experienced real suffering, that is such a precious promise. You know, have you ever endured things where you get done to the end and you just look around and say, we are still here. You know, that addiction did not destroy us. That tragedy did not ultimately break us. That suicide was not ultimate. That abandonment was not final. There are certain things you can endure where the most triumphant thing you can say is we're still here. And Jesus says, how do you get a heart that can be strong and stable enough to endure anything? Now, I had a good feeling that I wouldn't make it to point two, because point two is how to develop a plan so your heart can be healthy and strong and stable. But we're going to hold off on that and come back next week. Some of the keys is to look at the context that Jesus gives of the soils of communion with God, prayer with God, one another, living in group. One of the movements that Jesus says is the key piece is you have to come to me, you have to hear my word, and then you have to do them. So you need people and processes and places where you can come to him, you can hear, and you can... You can do, but let's wrap this up with thinking about Jesus. You know, he says the 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 heart that's strong, the stable. Uh, he is the ultimate wise one who he's actually building his house, and his house is built on the rock that is the confession about who he is. And, you know, if I just follow him and and come to him, I can hide in the cleft of the rock. You know, all of you over the last several years have experienced storms, and those storms can be a gift because they can reveal what our real foundation is. And in these passages, we can get a game plan for how we can make it through, how we can survive. But so key to that is you hear his word, and then you do it. But one of the key things is that we listen to his word because on the cross he endured the ultimate storm. The storm unlike any other storm, he endured that storm so that now in him we can be safe in any other storm. 
And the reason why words are so powerful, see, here's kind of the thing you think, all right, words are so powerful. They're like, they're good, they're evil, they're, they're, they're powerful. Is there any word that is so powerful that one word from this person could negate a thousand words from all these other people? When I was a youth minister, now this is 20, well, man. Maybe that AARP letter was really for me. Because this was the day when Friends was very popular. And one of the things I used to tell uh, the boys in our group, I said, if Jennifer Aniston has a crush on you, it doesn't matter what your little sister thinks about you. And Jennifer Aniston at the time was like the heartthrob that all like the teenage boys. Uh, and the, the idea was, all right, if somebody of this caliber likes you, it doesn't matter what these people say about you. Is there any word that you can get affirmation and affirming you that's so strong and powerful, it doesn't matter what any of these other words have? And remember that in the beginning was the word and it, just, it wasn't just a word, it was a person. And the word of the gospel comes to bring words that are true, the truth about who we really are, that we, because of our sin, we're far worse than we ever dare to admit, but that in Christ we're far more loved than we ever could dare dream, and that we can find a word that can be the ultimate life-giving word, and it begins with a word of forgiveness. That we can find forgiveness in God's presence. Forgiveness is the currency of Christ's kingdom. It's what we come and receive. It's the treasure we receive. And then it's the treasure we can then freely give. And so one of the reasons we celebrate communion every week is our weekly reminder of the forgiveness that's offered to us in Christ and that we freely can receive his forgiveness and then we can give it out to others. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this bread is symbolic of my body. My body is going to be broken so yours can be made whole. All the words that break and destroy, I will bear so I can give a word that heals and puts you back together again. And then this represents my blood. My blood is, is the symbol of the new covenant, and it represents forgiveness, that in me you can find forgiveness for your sins. So we'll have communion servers in, a, in uh, two places up front, one in the back. There's a gluten-free station in the back. We open this up to everyone who's been baptized and is seeking to follow the Lord. You come and you take the, the wafer and then you dip and you be reminded of the great gospel word that brings you life. So once we're in place, you come.